In this podcast, Adam Black from Innova Translational Medicine Institute talks about the future of data in health. So, stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Future Data Podcast. Today we have with us Aaron Black. Aaron, Aaron Black is uh, Chief Data Officer at Innova Translational Medi- Medicine Institute and a brief bio. So uh, he's a healthcare information technology executive and data evangelist, result-driven uh, technical leader with 20 plus years uh, of successful project and program implementations, visionary, collaborative, and able to devise creative solutions and culture to complex business challenges. Key thought leader, international speaker, team builder, data architect in building advanced and one-of-a-kind technical and data infrastructure to support precision medicine initiatives in large cutting-edge healthcare institutes. A featured speaker uh, a preci- uh, and panelist at National Conference of Council, including TEDx, uh, NIH, Amazon reInvent, Precision Medicine World Conference, LabRoots, HIMSS, and an invited uh, speaker at the National Research Council's Standing Committee on biological and physical um, sciences in space. Experience in startups and new team development, uh, proven change agent in diverse organizations and political charged environments, a catalyst to create vision, motivation, result across entire enterprise. Um, and excellent interpersonal skills, um, able to work effectively with individual and diverse background and inspire team to work uh, to their fullest potential. That's, uh, that's a handful. So thank you so much, Aaron, um, for coming to the podcast. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. It's always fun to hear about yourself in in verbose uh, terms like that. So I appreciate it. Great. And so why don't you walk us through um, your journey? Um, So if your background and and what brought you to this world of data science and what what you do um, with Innova? Yeah, so my my background is is I've interviewed a lot of people. It seems very similar to the paths that people take in that you go, you get somewhere at the end where you weren't sure, you know, how, how you got there, right? When I came out of school, I was not, not like a chief data officer was even a thing. Um, so, so how we got here, um, here to uh, Nova in Washington, D.C. is I, my career started um, out of college. So I had degrees in uh, accounting and management information systems. So I was a business major and I was so good at it. I stayed five years at Miami of Ohio uh, and uh, have a double major. But when I got out, um, this is right before Y2K, so 1999, mm-hmm. and people were all over the place with, hey, is this thing going to crash on us? Our computer's mm-hmm. going to stop. Our stoplight's going to, I mean, Armageddon, I'm, I can still remember January 1st, people weren't sure they had water and they had batteries. They weren't sure what was going to happen. So mm-hmm. when I got out, my first job was really to convert people from um, the character, uh, these, these green screen types of systems into actually GUI uh, interfaces. And so I came out and got my hands dirty really quickly, um, really gravitated towards the data aspect of things. So I could do networking, I did desktop support, but we did a lot of programming and I got really good at converting. So I got to see a lot of systems, got to take them from, you know, think of Excel, glorified Excel or access to uh, SQL Server Oracle systems and did those very rapidly because people weren't waiting. They needed to get their businesses running. Uh, so I did that for three or four years and then joined a startup uh, in Columbus, Ohio. So I originally started in Cincinnati, Ohio, moved up the uh, I-71 to Columbus and worked in a startup that did medical billing. And it was the first time I got to see healthcare uh, in its uh, state of just disarray. 
so coming from one that says, hey, you want a bill and you're going to get paid for what you do. Well, healthcare was a lot different. Healthcare was, mm. well, you're going to get paid, but it depends on who your payer is, depends who your provider is, depends on who's paying that month. Are you Medicare, Medicaid? And so I, I had to learn that on the fly too. Um, but I got into converting people. So going from a, a system that couldn't build to a system that could and doing four or five of them at a time. So I began to, again, see patterns in data and seeing the ways that these systems were set up and having to navigate very quickly, bring on team members, um, and just do these things very quickly. Uh, did that for four or five years and then got an opportunity at uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus. Uh, they had gotten a very large uh, grant from the National Institutes of Health, and it was a, a project called the Cancer Genome Atlas. And at that point in time, again, being a business major, being in all these types of more business aspects of data, it was my first um, really look at research, uh, research in mm -hmm. biomedical informatics. Uh, when he asked me, so this is a friend of mine from where I grew up, he had he was the director of uh, informatics at this uh, research institute in, in the Children's Hospital, and he said, do you want to do this? I said, I don't even know what a genome is. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. I, you know, my high school, I have a high school biology background. Mm -hmm. I'm really going to have to understand what's going on here. But he said, you have six months, you have it's you and you had to build a team and we're going to give you and then the bigger team, $6 million, and then you're going to recompete in six months. Do you want to try? And I was at a point in my career, I said, okay, this sounds fun. So we got to learn that on the fly. Again, now it was applications, biobanking, and we can get into this later what biobanking is, but think tissue trade <laughs> at its very core level, but for cancer. So it was the, it was the first time that I had like a why. Why are you doing this? Like it was actually something very mission critical and not that insurance and other things that I was doing was not mission critical for those industries, but now I had a reason to get back. And mm -hmm. in three or four years, we built a team of um, you know project managers, software developers, we were Java-based. We did a lot of data coordination and, and moving together data sets and dispersing them across the country and really found a niche there and said, this is some things where I think I can make an impact um, with my skills that I had developed over those first nine years. And that's where I moved to Inova. So then I moved my family from Columbus to uh, Northern Virginia. So we're located 15 miles outside of Washington, D.C. The Inova Health System is a community-based healthcare system. So if you have an emergency room visit in Northern Virginia, if you have a baby in Northern Virginia, 70% of the time you're coming to an Inova facility. So it's a quite large organization, but very fee-for-service. And this was mm -hmm. this institute that I'm in, which is the Inova Translational Medicine Institute, was the first time Inova had done some research at this type of scale. And it's all around genetics and genomics. And so when I came in, they had been there for, uh, had been in existence for about two and a half years. They had a mouse, they had about two, a little bit under two petabytes of data. Um, and this was all connected to the uh, electronic health record. And mm -hmm. they needed someone to come in and operationalize that because they were, just think of loose collections of data sitting everywhere. A lot of uh, probably people that you know and or you're interviewing have the same problem. It's you know data silos and things that, just aren't, aren't organized in a way that can be scalable. So we came in, again, had to build a team from pretty much scratch. And now four years later, we're moving into a, even a larger facility um, because the biomedical informatics and translational medicine and the term uh, precision medicine is exploding. Mm -hmm. And you hear a lot about it and our teams now, now have to deal with that, uh, the expectations of what this can do. And I'm sure we can get into that as we, as we discussed. So right now I lead a team uh, think full data acquisition from you know, acquiring data to modeling to quality control. Um, we use systems like clouds who are a big AWS uh, user. We also have built local you know, Hadoop clusters and have traditional relational databases that the healthcare system helps us manage. 
and we do all um, support for all the analytics, all the bioinformatics, as well as um, clinical reporting now. So now, uh, back to the translational side, we actually do clinical mm -hmm. reporting that can impact patients uh, as they come through the health system. So we manage all that data um, across the health system. Wow, interesting. And um, thank you so much, um, Aaron, for walking us through um, all the all the nitty gritties of, of your background and what you do currently in, in Innova. That's really, really helpful. So um, what is translational medicine uh, for our viewers and listeners? So if you can, if you can walk us through what exactly it is. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yes, yeah, so at a very high level, it's basically taking the research that we do, um, and a lot of that is very data-driven, and translating that back into patient care. So yeah. how that's different than um, like a basic research is basic research is going in and just trying to find the fundamental understanding of something that's happening. You'll yeah. write a paper, you'll get a grant, you're just, you're just acquiring knowledge and sharing that with the community. What we're in the business of doing is taking that knowledge and actually putting that back into how we treat our patients. Um, so a common example of that would be what we do with pharmacogenomics. And what mm. pharmacogenomics is, it's the study of how a drug affects a, affects in a particular person based on their genetics. So okay. if you um, have certain genes that you will metabolize a certain drug better than others, or it won't impact you at all. So we've taken all this research that's been done across the country, across the world, and are now applying that to a person who comes in and maybe had had a heart attack or has a heart condition, and there's a just a, a bunch of drugs that may or may not work depending on you know, their genetics. Well, we now can take some blood, or you can spit in a cup. It comes to our lab. It goes through the, the health system. We generate a report that then can tell you and think very simplistically: green, yellow, green, red, yellow. There's a lot mm. of sophisticated analytics going on here, but doctors don't want to read all the detail. Mm. They just want to know: is this going to be effective for you? So our mm -hmm. team um, helps with other vendors and translates that into something that, again, a person can understand, is that drug good for me or not? And hopefully, you know, can save their lives or at least increase their risks or decrease their risks of, of having an adverse reaction to a drug. Interesting. And, and how close um, typically are you aligned with, 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 say, pharmaceutical companies and their research on, like, how closely are, are sort of your data uh, gathering and, and analysis is shared with, with pharmacies? So right now, um, it's very isolated. So there are some privacy concerns. There are some, um, just think of even, um, you know, how we share data with outsiders you know, from a de-identification standpoint. So right now, we do not share that data directly, the genetic data directly with these pharmaceutical companies. Now, they will get data that says we dispensed something and here's what we did. And that's been going on for a long time. You read the history of uh, the way that the healthcare systems work with pharmaceutical companies. They have data brokers that do a lot of that. But as far as the genetics go, we keep that in-house because our consents, when we consent a patient, do not mm. allow us to share that information. But that's a very interesting point in things that on the, you know, when we look at the data officer roles and things like that, we're looking at ways to, you know, um, take this data and make it more valuable, not just for our internal consumers, but for others who could take that data and do good things with it. So when you start to do pharmacogenom pharmacogenomics at scale, and you're now seeing populations come in, and you're seeing it longitudinally, we do think that's a valuable asset that a pharmaceutical company would be interested in, um, both um, to improve their product, as well as hopefully um, lessen the burden on our population of what they spend in drug costs. Interesting. And, and uh, I think in, you were talking about precision medicine. So what exactly is precision medicine? 
So precision medicine is uh, where you're looking at that molecular level. So you're looking at the, your genetics. You're looking at every cell in your body has a code. This is, this is what we want the cell to do. So the precision part of that is now we're treating you at that cellular level as opposed to just, just giving drugs broadly and was hoping it works for you and then changing it if it doesn't. So instead of kind of a guess and check type of drug distribution, now we can be very precise in who a uh, drug we think will work for them and, and what won't, it won't work. And then as this evolves, you can think of things that now you have drug interactions, drug and multiple drugs. So a lot of the um, people are not just on one drug, they're on one, two, three, or four. And you can't, right now the, the data isn't strong enough to uh, do um, those kind of what they call polypharmacy types of approaches where you're looking at multiple drugs. Um, mm -hmm. So that's another place where we think there'll be impact on the precision medicine side is not just one drug, but if you have a cocktail of drugs, what's going to happen? Interesting. I think I remember like a couple of years back, um, I had a conversation with a bunch of sort of uh, pharmacy or, or, or um, uh, pharmaceutical executives in Boston Circle. And I think it was during Obama time and, and there was, I think, a mandate from, um, uh, I think, healthcare.gov around um, around sort of translate or sort of creating an ontology in which all the pharmac pharmaceutical companies can share um, their sort of analysis on the research. So. Is that is that a reality now from your vantage point, or like how, or, or are so the you guys and, and pharmaceutical companies? Do you have like some data sharing going on right now, or or it's still in its infancy? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah. Um, I say it's uneven. There's definitely there's definitely stuff going on. So there's like a healthcare system. Um, like we work a little bit with healthcare, uh, with pharmaceutical companies for individual drug trials, clinical trials. But as far as the data sharing aspect of that, um, you know, there are some um, fairly large consortiums of people. Um, mm. so even through the NIH, through um, what they call clinical trials, uh, clinical translational science awards mm. uh, where they're bringing uh, different like-minded institutions and putting the data together and think of a federated model. Um, so you keep the you keep the identified data within your firewall, but you give like a catalog to a central uh, company and that company is the kind of the cataloger. So if a clinical or a pharmaceutical company wants to come in and say, Hey, do you have a population that, you know, is this age of this ethnicity maybe has this type of condition and is on this type of, maybe has these type of lab values, we would like to be able to find those people and run a trial on a drug that we have in our pipeline. And mm. those other things are going on. Uh, and in, in a place like Inova, where we're in DC, we have a very um, diverse population and it becomes very attractive um, for those pharma pharmaceutical companies to go to one or two players instead of having to wait to accrue the right number of patients for their trials. Interesting. Um, and, and, and I think you also talked about uh, biobanking uh, in your pitch earlier. So what exactly is biobanking, if you can walk us through that? Uh, so biobanking is, think of uh, tissue inventory. So, um, oh. so is it, uh, the example I'll have with, is with the Cancer Genome Atlas. We were a bank, so think of um, very, very cold freezers, think negative 80 degrees, mm. because tissue has to be stored so cold so it doesn't degrade. Mm. And it's not just tissue, it's blood, it's saliva, it's anything that you Think of any of the most disgusting things that come out of your body, they're banking mm -hmm. it. And they want to know that, you know, not only do they want to bank it, but they want to know a little bit about who you are, what your context was, were you healthy, were you diseased? So for example, in cancer, if you had a melanoma, they would take that off your skin, they put it 
they freeze it, flash freeze it, put it in a vial, and they'd ship it on. And they'd say, and then they have a pathologist who would look at that and say, well, that person has, you know, a stage two melanoma. And then we would track these particular phenotypic things about you. And that would be a bank. So just like you have a big vault with um, money in it, now we have a big vault with different specimens that are more valuable because we know things about them. And so if you can get enough of them and you see kind of a progression, so now you can see the people that are doing well with their cancer treatments or people who don't do well. And now you can start to aggregate them and take those specimens out of that bank, unfreeze them, and then mm. see if you want to do particular types of biological tests against them. So genetics is the big one right now. So think whole genome sequencing or maybe sequencing a specific gene that they think of as of interest. Um, things they call epigenetics, which are things above genetics. Mm. Um, there's all kinds of, uh, think of it uh, almost like an onion. They, they started with genetics and they started to peel it out and say, well, there's actually more than genetics. And this data layer, so the, the data part of this is you have to understand, you know, when, it, when in this, the sample went in, who was attached to, um, how did they freeze it? So these are materials that are very, very finicky. So you have to store them in the right way. You can't take them out and froze, uh, uh, thaw them and then put them back and expect them to be the same as they were because, they, they again, they degrade. So this becomes a big business where these things are very valuable. And the more information you have on them, the more valuable they are to other hospital systems, to research institutes, and as you mentioned, pharmaceutical companies, because they become very rare if you see a rare disease or a collection of people who they think a target would be of, of, of interest. And so uh, in cancer, we had, uh, I think, 27 different cancers represented. Uh, and then we were the facility that would not only collect them and store them and track them, but we'd also be the ones that distributed them. So this then thinks of UPS. We were the UPS of, of and these things are really small. I think vials are very, very small. Barcodes that had to be very um, procured because you can't put um, barcodes on things that are negative 80 degrees. You can't get them at uh, uh, Staples. Um, so this is actually very expensive as well. And um, there's, uh, there's, there's places around the world that do this for a, for a business. And um, again, we do this at, at our facility. There's... Um, uh, all, a lot of the hospitals, Mayo Clinic has very big ones. I mean, think robotics, mm. think mm. automation. I mean, there's all kinds of um, things that are happening now, and that data becomes very valuable, but then it also becomes very large and very disparate because now you're doing different reactions and things that are microscopic. And, um, you know, the petabytes of data that we store are coming off data that size. And so mm. just moving that around becomes cumbersome. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of delving into the deep, deepness of this, but from a data officer perspective, you have to understand all the nuances to, to the biobanking business because that's what mm -hmm. generates these larger files. Those larger files have to go to scientists. Those, those, they have to understand the context in order to do their research in any way that's going to be valuable and timely because a lot of them have limited funds, limited time um, to get their work done. Interesting. And, and, and thank you so much for walking us through that. I think that that's really, really informative for our listeners and viewers. So um, in I think so in your background, I think one thing that that really was fascinating uh, to me was, uh, I, as you said, you're from accountant business background, getting into the data science in, in healthcare. What is the difference? Like what has how has been your journey um, from the perception wise? Like how how is healthcare um, data and healthcare industry vis a vis your, your previous experiences? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. The, the healthcare industry, life sciences, was very archaic in that they mm -hmm. a lot of the, the things that businesses were kind of taking for granted, healthcare just wasn't doing yet. 
um, or they were doing it in bulk and they were just doing it to, to keep the lights on. So IT and healthcare systems um, is very defensive, right? They want to protect things. They want to keep the lights running. They want patients to stay safe and secure, and they have a valid reason to do that. I mean, I've been a patient. My wife's been a patient. Mm -hmm. We want that to be as secure as mm -hmm. possible to keep things running. And in the research side of things, that can be the opposite. You want to go fast. You want to, you know, manipulate data pretty quickly. You don't mm -hmm. want to wait six months to procure a system when you're, again, your grant is accruing dollars. So, um, you know, the research side of things tends to want to go quickly where the healthcare, general healthcare wants to go a little bit more methodically. And so where we came in is we're kind of a hybrid. We want to be in the middle of that, but we have to understand and empathize with both sides, mm. right? We can't, we have to be kind of that blended. We, we want to go um, securely protect care of privacy, but then we also want to iterate and we, we will break things and we have to expect mm. we're going to break things on the big data side. So how do we um, kind of um, uh, empathize with both sides and make these uh, systems, the, the processes work and in the business side, um, I think they were a lot more in that uh, dev test prod type of areas where in research, it was all, it was all dev, right? There was mm -hmm. no production. They didn't care that they wrote a piece of code and it broke and it, you know, it, it bogged down the systems like, well, you know, patients aren't impacted. Um, we didn't have redundancy. I mean, if something broke down, you had to wait for that thing to reboot. And mm -hmm. some of these computers are not like a Windows and Macs. These things take hours and hours. These are big computers with multiple clusters and all kinds of direct attached storage that are very complicated for formula one cars would be my, mm -hmm. my uh, very, very tuned. So coming into that area and trying to take these best practice things that were happening in business to a research environment is always met with a little bit of, you know, why, um, what does that do for me? Uh, and so that's where, um, you know, we've come in and it takes a little while to, to, to educate. So we educate them on that side. And the great thing about a lot of these places, is they educate you on the biology. If, if for people who are like, well, I'd like to get in this industry, if you like biology and you like, mm -hmm. you know, there's no better place to be because the, a lot of these people are researchers, they're professors, they want to, they actually love to talk about it. They mm -hmm. love to get on a whiteboard at six o'clock on a Tuesday and really knock it out with you because um, if you're, you're in the, in the right mindset, you're going to learn a hell of a lot from them and they're mm -hmm. going to learn a lot from you too. And it's a very symbiotic uh, relationship. Interesting. And um, so from, um, I think one other thing that was really fascinating about um, about your journey had been sort of you you were sort of installed uh, in a process when there's no process and say hey now let's let's create this department let's create this practice and and you did that mm -hmm. so what are some of the commonalities or some of the best practices that you could ex that you have extracted that you could share um, that has helped you structure uh, sort of these departments or structure these sort of practices uh, what are some of the things that you can share. Uh, I mean, the first thing is, again, learning the business. Mm. I mean, you can't build a team if you don't understand the business. And if you've seen my history, it's I get into a lot of things that I don't know the business that well. So mm. it's really to get dirty. Mm. Um, it is getting in there and understanding the business and the data that they're producing and then asking a lot of questions. So being very curious, um, empathizing, and then finding people that are like that. Right, Your first couple of hires, you have to you know, build that into the DNA of your team. You know, they, you know, I've recruited a lot of people outside of the industry because mm -hmm. I, I also like diverse teams. People have different perspectives because you get people that are already in healthcare and they already think defensively, then it mm -hmm. becomes very hard to be offensive. And if you hire people that are on the research side that like to break things, um, then it becomes really hard to, you know, get those methodologies. So I like to d diversify that. So, so it's not just about a skill set. It's, it's actually looking at the team you want to build, which should have a little bit of both. 
Uh, and then um, the very first couple, you get a little bit more senior people because they're going to have to run on their own. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, if you're your hands dirty, you can't do the strategy and you can't do the, the hand-to-hand combat all the time. You're, you're almost coming up and down. So you have to find people that, that like that too, that can multitask or to, um, they're almost kind of, I'm a quiet, calm person. Like under mm-hmm. on the surface, my legs are going like this really fast, <laughs> but on the or on the surface I am, but on the bottom I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm constantly churning. So finding people mm-hmm. that, you know, um, are in that same kind of mentality where they can inspire confidence, even though they, they question maybe even their sanity at times. And then, and then building that into a team. And so as you, uh, you onboard more people, you then looking at, hey, what's, what are, you know, it's like a Kanban board. You're kind of looking at, hey, what's next? Mm-hmm. What's happening over and over again? And what skill set could help do that? What, what skill set could come in and help us document, automate, um, uh, move this thing faster? Um, and both from a you know, contractor to an FTE, maybe it's a consultant or someone you have in your portfolio that you know, hey, mm. they're great at infrastructure. They've worked it here. Let's bring them in. Let's talk to them. Because um, uh, we were mentioning before, nobody knows it all and nobody will ever know it all. So if you have that mindset of, hey, I, I, I need to have you know, a team here. I need to have someone who I can consult with um, to give me some sanity. If I'm knee deep in it, sometimes my, my blinders are on. Um, I think that also uh, happens very early for me. And, uh, and again, bring in some people that uh, uh, I would say document a lot, a lot of documentation early, understanding, doing a lot of interviewing, um, and then trying to organize that in a way. And I haven't found the perfect way to organize all your thoughts. Like I am an Evernote mm. type of person and I try to tag things so that I can go back and search because you can't, mm. you can't remember it all. Uh, um, but a lot of it is you know, spending a lot of time early on documentation and trying to aggregate things that are happening again over and over again. So that those are the things you attack first, and those are the people that you want to come in and help first. Interesting. I think that's that's fascinating. So one more thing that I uh, I can recall from some of the conversation I had from folks from uh, health and and, uh, and pharmaceutical industry in in data leadership is um, sort of I think somewhat the constant frustration around um, the regulation. Right. So as a data scientist, you can do a lot as a data as sort of if, if you if you are running a, a sort of a, a, a center of excellence for data, you can get a lot of insights uh, and, and do a lot of fun stuff. But because of regulations and I think you pointed out some of it that um, the systems were archaic and sort of they're not talking to each other and all that. How how has been your journey? Like what has been your experience and, and appreciation about sort of these um, extremely um, secure infrastructure that you have to work um, sort of negotiate to get your data to get the analysis going that probably scientists want or researchers want for the execution what what has been your sort of experience uh so it's it this is this is this is very interesting because we're going through this even now right so mm-hmm. um it, it's a lot of people skills like as bad as mm-hmm. it sounds like we always talk about mm-hmm. uh, automation we talk about technical details a lot of things that I've seen is that you have to find the people that are controlling, you know, the access mm. and understanding their, their, their needs, their assessments. How can you, you know, talk their language? Um, and then again, in, we're in the middle. So we're kind of in the middle between IT and we're the traditional IT. We're in the middle of the research mm. side and mm. they want to go fast and one wants to go slow. So a lot of this is relationship, relationship building, you know, understanding mm. what their goals and assets are. How can we uh, be um, enable them? Because if not, they're going to get the direct researcher going to them. Right mm-hmm. on our side, the direct scientists or the direct software development teams are going to be coming in from the outside, wanting to hit IT, and we want to be that trusted intermediary to um, understand their privacy concerns, 
Um, do they not, do they understand or not understand what we're trying to do? Hmm. Um, how can we articulate that in a way that's very consistent? Do they have a data governance process um, hmm. uh, around this stuff? And again, coming from where we're at, uh, Inova didn't have a research governance system. Hmm. They have clinical data governance, uh, but they don't have research data governance. It's a different animal. And so hmm. there, a lot of this is education, right? I think the term we use a lot is data literacy. Right? We want mm. to become literate as an organization around what we can and can't do because I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to be in the front mm. of the Wall Street Journal because genetics got out. Uh, nobody there does. So how do we come into this this uh, way? And, and then that architecture and that, that process can then flow from there. So if mm. they're, um, you know, you'll see that a lot of this is based on the, the environment that we're in, which is if there's a data breach at Target, all of a sudden people mm. you know, clam up. Um, mm. there's been some local things in DC where, you know, we're in the government space where we're around a lot of cyber mm. companies and they, mm. they come in and they, you know, again, they just want checklists. Mm. Well, checklist is fine, but if you don't know the reason why you're doing the checklist, you might mm. not realize why you're checking things on or off. So again, from our perspective, we want to know, you know, what, what they, what they want us to do, how we can do it, how can we become a trusted partner? And then once we get to that, 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 um, uh, that trusted partnership, how do we make things go a little bit faster incrementally? Because this is not going to be all of a sudden, everything's going to open up and everybody's going to be happy and high-fiving. We want to take mm. those incremental understanding, let's do a couple things and then let's work our way back. And as there's more and more data and there's more and more ways to, um, let's say, anonymize or de-identify it, there's also now more ways to re-identify. And mm. so, um, here, there's a lot of discussion around um, you know, you can, you can anonymize a data set about a patient, right? But if there's a public breach, can we mm. now re-identify them, even if you've done best practice hit by de-identification? Mm. And um, I think you're going to ask me eventually about a book that I was reading. And so there's a new book that came out that I'm knee deep in that I'm enamored mm. with because this has been going in healthcare. This has been going on for a long time, but mm. nobody really talks about it because who would want to know that they're, they're you know, behind the scenes trading. It's de-identified, but it's still information about you and me and the people who come into health systems. So um, it is a bottleneck and it is a concern. And um, on the research side, they're aware of it. But um, again, we have to be, in our, our, our perspective, we need to be trusted advisors uh, in the middle to get some of that data out and, and, and useful for, for our researchers. Interesting. And I think you talked about a very important um, sort of keyword that's, that's extremely relevant for uh, folks who are in the regulated industry i think data govern like data literacy right so educating or empowering sort of other folks to understand why you need what you need and sort of how you need what you need so what are some of the best practices that you have um, gathered in your experience sort of in educating and empowering other workers um, and understanding that why you need whatever you need and creating creating those data governance models and what are some of the things that you, that you could share so um, what we typically do is we, we actually have standing meetings. We start with standing meetings, right? We start, you have to have a cadence. Like if you tell them one time and then they, they're going to lose it if they don't hear it at least a second or a third time. So, you know, we're, we're, we start with who's giving us the data requests. So if that's a clinical team, if that's a bioinformatics team, we have regular meetings with them and we start to ask them for a, at least a write-up of why they want data. And that's where it starts because when you're starting early, you don't know all the, the different things you want to ask. You, it's, it's tough to create a process. It's perfect because God knows that it'll never be perfect. So we start very basic. And again, mm -hmm. it's kind of this uh, Kanbanish first in, mm -hmm. first out. You ask for that request, you know, what are you asking for? Is, that, is there PHI in it is our very first question always. You know, are mm -hmm. you asking for practical information? If it is, then we have to, we have a route which goes up mm. a different line. If it's non-PHI, then we can get it done faster. 
And so we stratify very early. Um, but then on the literacy side, then we start to ask different questions. And because typically what happens in these, uh, I would call it very white glove, you know, very mm -hmm. um, custom data pulls that they want, you have to understand how they talk about their data. So do you have a common vernacular? Because mm -hmm. the way I talk about it might be very technical and very uh, sterile. And I don't know the business that well, where they might be talking about it in a very specific way. So being face-to-face -face, um, and uh, finding ways that you can actually be in a room where you can visualize the data with them has also been extremely mm -hmm. helpful because then they see something tangible. If you're just exchanging emails with Excel spreadsheets or CSV files or whatever in there, or even a link to a, um, you know, a Tableau um, type of visualization, it's hard for you to get any momentum in that very much uh, way. You, you, we need interaction here. So again, mm -hmm. having a cadence, having a meeting regularly and starting to go through the, the quests, uh, asking the same questions over and over again. So they get into a repeating pattern of, oh, I know they're going to ask this now. So maybe mm -hmm. the next time they don't ask it and we can get a step farther, which is, mm -hmm. okay, uh, maybe I don't even ask that question anymore. Uh, and then you, again, back to the repeating. If you start getting the same questions over and over again, can I automate those types of things? Mm -hmm. Can I automate those types of uh, queries? Can I automate that type of visualization for them? Can I do some self-service? Um, again, we're just trying to make headroads so that we have a better um, time spent. We want the uh, the cost of our, our our time, their time, which is very valuable to be done in things that are moving us forward, as opposed to rehashing things that have mm -hmm. already been asked and already been done. But it only, but you can only do that by being face to face and being repetitive, which is not that sexy, but um, hmm. yeah. sometimes that's what you have to do. Interesting, and I think, um, and you are pretty connected in in in, in this field of um, sort of um, data science in in health space. And I think from your vantage point, how has been cultural culture of these organizations responding to sort of uh, folks like you? How like what has been your observation? Like, are they uh, are they friendlier now than they used to? Are they more collaborative now? Like, what has been your experience in dealing with sort of uh, the business folks and in in sort of in getting the data out and then sort of creating this um, this silos? Like, what has been your experience? it definitely comes down again to personalities. Um, mm. you have, in your organization, you get a reputation of, of a success. Like, mm. Hey, I know that person is good to work with. They're, they're realistic. They're, they, they talk to you. You tend to get, you know, but you, you tend to get better responses early um, mm. versus when you first come in and yeah, they're, they're siloed. They're tight with their data. They want to know why um, mm. they, they might throw things like I have regulations and mm. then you ask them for the regulations and then they say, well, it's because my, my uh, boss or my PI doesn't want this, or the CIO says I can't do this. Mm. And then you have to go through those hoops in a, in a very transparent way. Um, and as, what I found, as long as you're open and honest with people, um, mm. they tend to be more receptive to that, but there also is those people that are, you, you just can't get past. And there's also that time where you have an opportunity cost with your own internal uh, time. Mm. And so then, you know, how much time do you spend on that? And it comes down to, you know, the priority of it, uh, the way this might, you know, uh, be, be seen through, you know, your organization. So there's times when you, you know, have to go up through your, your reporting line to get things done. And there's times when you just, Hey, get them on a call again, get somebody in a room, you know, the emails to me just don't work mm. um, when you're trying to have that kind of response. Um, and it's difficult sometimes if you're co-located or you're not always there, these people are busy. So sometimes mm. what I've seen is, you know, getting on the calendar, getting very good with somebody's admin. So if you know their, their administrator and you can give her some, a coffee or some cookies she can get you on the schedule um sometimes it's those low you know again I, we're, we're having a te technical type of discussion here but <laughs> as you can see there's a lot of uh, nuance to mm. getting the thing 
want done uh, in an enterprise level like this, uh, which sometimes is the, the soft skills of that. And communication is very big for our team and our, because uh, this is what we, we uh, promote to our entire team. Like mm. you're, you're technically savvy. You know, you can do it. <laughs> I know you can do it, but um, you can't demand things. You have to have some kind of um, uh, savvy to, to, to asking for the right things so that we can get, get our work done. Interesting. And, and I think from your vantage point in, and I'm not uh, talking specific about your personal interaction, but what are some of the challenges that uh, a data science leader um, faces in, in an organization in, in say healthcare space or or sort of uh, bioinformatics? Like what, what are some of the challenges that you see um, that the data science leader faces? I say the one that always hits me, the very first thing is expectations. So there's this, mm. this, this part of people that think this is magic and mm. that, uh, you know, on the executive level, they'll see um, the marketing, they'll see, you know, think of, uh, and, and I've, I've done mm. these presentations for our executives and it's literally think of the yellow brick road and they think the Emerald Palace is at the end mm. of this. It's very easy. All you got to do is put it in Watson and this thing's going to spit out mm. something magical mm. for you. And in healthcare, um, I think in anything is really difficult. And then I think in healthcare mm. it's become extra difficult because the data is uneven, it's incomplete. Um, it's not as good as I think sometimes the executives think it, think it is. And mm. a lot of this is education back to literacy of saying, hey, you know, we're spending about 80% of our time just getting the data that people need it. You know, mm. we need to make some fundamental um, infrastructure changes in order to make that now flip. So instead of 80% of the time of just munging and wrangling and all the terms that you probably have heard everybody talk to, how do we do that in a way that now we can flip it? And so now we're never going to get away from having to wrangle data. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Hmm. The machines aren't going to be that smart, especially if, um, when it's the first time they've seen this stuff. And that's the way it is in the genetics. I mean, there's some data we've never hmm. seen before. Um, we need to be better with the low, uh, the low hanging fruit. And so the education of them to say, you know, we have to have the, the infrastructure, we have to have the teams. Um, hmm. This is going to be a significant cost to get you up off the ground, but then think of it as a, an investment in the future. And in healthcare, um, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of change the way we're reimbursed. There's going to be a lot of change in the way that healthcare is going to be um, paid. And mm. so a lot of this is just educating them on what this is truly going to take. And it's not magic. Interesting. And and what are some of the things that you say ple- are pleasantly surprised with uh, when, when you are dealing with sort of this uh, leadership that they just get it somehow? Like, what are some of the things that you can share? I think, you know, I think they're extremely passionate about things. They, 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 they you know, once you get them on your side there, they are extremely dedicated, hardworking, uh, and they have great ideas. And so that's the other thing that's, I think, magical about this time is that you have Mm. different perspectives. And if you have the right team um, on the infrastructure side and on the data science side, and you can team them with the business side, and these these amazing clinicians and these amazing scientists, truly magic does happen. Um, Mm. But it's it's, sometimes it's lightning in a bottle. And it's, Mm. it's doing that and repeating it that I think is tough when, you know, there's, a, you know, the grants and the researchers, you know, they're transient, they move on, they move on to another project. So how do you create an ecosystem where this is really the norm and not, not that lightning in a bottle? But to me, I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in the cancer researcher. I've seen it happen at ANOVA. And that's what brings us back to work every day looking for that and, um, um, and seeing that happen. So I think it's a very lot of time. Interesting. And and what are uh, what are sort of if uh, some of the big opportunities that you see, or some uh, that for anyone trying to enter into sort of um, health space or health data space, 
what are some of the some of the big opportunities you think that uh, that still exist and still sort of uh, we we uh, we can explore well i think uh, there's so many targets in healthcare right now so i'll give you a couple some examples of things that we've seen um that would be enticing for just pretty much anybody so think of um mm-hmm. uh the um the alexa type apps so think mm-hmm. of things that where you're doing voice recognition and you're able to put that into a format that is in a logical way um, so that we can mine that information instead of having like transcription or it's like free text notes. I mean, there's a lot of work going on in NLP, which is great, but you're actually too far upstream. Um, I think you should really get to the, to the source of it, which is let's, let's make these interactive kind of discussions that doctors and patients are having and, 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 and use this great technology and put that in place and then have all this machine learning on the back end of that to clean up mm-hmm. the text, to put it into a format that then people in the machines can then use um, uh, to aggregate and to make some really important kind of um, uh, associations that we wouldn't necessarily know because it's embedded in digital, but it's it's all over the place. And so mm-hmm. um, I think we've seen that. I think another area um, is what I would call image recognition. Now, this is mm-hmm. similar to the stuff you'll see with like uh, self-driving cars, but mm-hmm. um, uh, it, Pathology images on cells in cancer, mm. you know, looking at how aggressive they are and then finding what uh, the uh, impact of certain drugs are over time and seeing the impact of uh, the, of the drug on a particular person. But you can now look at a slide and say how aggressive it is. This is the type of drug that will work for that cell. And you can have that all automated. So, um, you know, right now, a lot of the, the pathology work is visual and it's on these experts and that's great. But now if we can have the pathologist train these image recognition tools, um, the pathologists can now kind of move their focus instead of eyeballing these things all day. Now they can get into the, the creative um, side of things, which is the, you know, the rare disease, and how they treat and, and finding more ways to enrich um, that information as opposed to just, just kind of um, you know, blindly going, not say blindly going through, but doing the same things over and over again, which is kind of mind numbing. I'd like to be able mm. you know, I think the machines in our world and this, this data is going to help us take away the mundane, mundane things and get us, moving forward. So we're not doing so many of those things. We're doing the things that I think are, are, are going to push us forward because right now the humans are the ones that are going to move us forward, not the machines. The machines are going to enable us, but they're not going to, they're not going to solve it. So I think those are two areas um, that I see right now in healthcare that are exploding and need a lot of talent on the data side to help. Interesting. And say if, if I'm a health system nowadays and I'm looking for, say, someone to lead my data science practice, mm-hmm. like what would you, what would you say um, are the ingredients of a good leader that I should be looking out for? Like what? Um, well, I, again, I think of somebody, you know, I'm going to go with the soft skills first and then because the technical mm-hmm. side, I think, I think they're well written of what, you know, what you can go out there and find. Um, in a healthcare mm-hmm. space, you're definitely going to have to be a good communicator. You're definitely going to have to be able to learn quickly. Uh, and really, you're going to be talking to some people that know their, you know, their PhDs or MDs have been around for a, quite mm. a while. They know their, their business very well. Mm. They're going to challenge you. Um, mm. They're going to challenge you um, because they don't know your world. And so you're mm. going to have to be able to communicate. You're going to have to be able to get requirements. You're going to have to be able to iterate and, and, and come back. And, and, and so rapid learning, people who can learn rapidly that have shown that they, you know, they can be in different industries and pick things up. Um, because uh, I would tell you there's a talent pool that's mm. limited right now for that mm. and to stick yourself out you know if you're you have great skills in python or you have great skills in r that might not be the way that you'll stick you'll stick out to everybody else it might be mm. the fact that you come in you can communicate you can take results and you can show them and you can tell people and understand why those results happen so it's not about 
plug, you know, doing your data, putting it into a, an algorithm, shooting it out and saying, hey, look at what I found, you have to be able to explain it because they're going to nitpick everything that you do and they're going to challenge yeah. it. And the other thing that we've seen a lot in healthcare with these apps or these um, algorithms is that if you can't explain them, if they just, they're kind of black box, mm. um, they have a, mm. the, the scientists have a hard time um, uh, thinking that that's the answer. They really want to know mm. why, you know, mm. they, that's, you know, they don't trust anything. And so coming in this space, if you're a person that's really good at understanding and communicating why that happened and, and then even question your own results and getting really good at, well, you know, how, how sensitive is that, that analysis that I did? It was my, was my, what were my assumptions? Did I make the right assumptions? Can I ask a, a particular person, Hey, I did this, is this right? So being very, I would say humble, uh, at mm. first, um, because you're mm. going to get humbled if you're in this for a while, because there's, there's so much to learn. So those would be the things I would look out for. Interesting. And, and on that same, if we stay on the same hypothetical, so if say someone comes in and, and, and joins that role, what are say some of the initial things that you would recommend um, this particular gentleman or gentlewoman to sort of uh, explore when it, when it comes to creating this data science practice? Like, what are some of the things that you would suggest as a tactical steps that I, that they could take? Technical steps. So I, I think you know a lot of this is getting their hands dirty and looking at the data, how it how it how it, how it actually comes into the system. Mm. Um, understanding the context first, um, if, because if you get it at the end. Um, especially in our world, there's, there's a lot of things that happen to that data before it gets, you know, into the hands of our groups. Um, so it's actually going through and understanding how the data came in. Did it come in through the EMR? Did it go through a biobank? And, you know, what are all the things that happened to it? Um, so it is really getting dirty with the data. Again, coming in and out of getting dirty and then uh, coming up for air and asking questions mm. and going back and, um, and, and learning um, you know, more about the business. And then it's also about the tools. You know, so a lot of this is having standardized tools, being very good at documenting, you know, what you're doing, your code. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're, and I don't know if you guys have interviewed a lot of people on like data science platforms, you know, so, mm -hmm. you know, having these uh, ways that, you know, a lot of us uh, are really keen on data lineage and, and re reproducibility. Mm -hmm. um, and because our data is coming from various places, sometimes it's very hard to put that into a consistent view of, you know, did it come in through the cloud and sucked down and put on a machine and done had some stuff happen to it versus did it come from an app um, and then people manipulated it and then there was some massaging to it. So, you know, that's a very hard thing for us to do and to figure out. Mm. Once we get it, we want to have it in one ecosystem so we can track, you know, whatever all people are doing to it. And, and of course, then it comes down to even from the, the protection side. You know, we have to know what people are doing and what they're touching and are they moving in places that they should be. So, um, you know, but, but we like scientists who, you know, that's, that's a kind of their mindset. They understand that, you know, you can't just hack away at it and then leave it, leave it go or not have mm. something, even, even when you don't, even when you fail or you don't get somewhere, we want to know that because then we can make our systems better. We can make our knowledge better. And if you do clean up data, we want to know you cleaned it up because maybe there's a root cause to that that we could clean up later. Interesting. Um, fascinating, by the way. And, and thank you so much for walking us through. This in this, it's it's a good, it's it's really really useful for anyone venturing into the data science uh, leadership roles and uh, in healthcare space. So other thing that that I definitely am curious about uh, to learn from you is um, the team dynamics. Or say if if on the same same hypothetical, uh, what are some of the team best practices that you would suggest to this this particular um, sort of executive? What are some of the team like um, best practices that you have gathered around how to build a team or put together a team that is serving this sort of uh, this narrative of data could be 
working supporting a scientist and and sort of data could be sitting on any any silos whatever you can share um, around the team right so i mean we still struggle with this i mean this is still an area where you know when you look at the full data life cycle the type of talent you need to go from just acquiring it all the way to actually putting it back in the healthcare system it's quite a range um, and so we found out we've had some really good people you know again back it's a team concept we need we need the whole full thing mm-hmm. But I would say that the, one of the biggest lessons learned we have is to make sure the team knows the entire, uh, that whole entire lineage and who does what, mm. right? A lot of people want to try to end to end themselves. Um, a lot of people will want to, you know, skip a step. And mm. so a lot of this is, again, building the team concept. Here's all the things we want to do and here's why. And so even if you don't do, you know, the low level blocking and tackling on the clinical data, but you're going to use mm. it, you have, kind of have to understand who does it and why they do it that way. Um, even if you're just taking it at the end, because a lot of times these, these teams are interacting. And if you can have them understand that full, it kind of eliminates a lot of those um, uh, either false assumptions that are made at the end or even the way that the individuals rub each other the wrong way um, mm. on, on, on the way they do things. So um, and one of the things that we're concentrating on is actually having a, a kind of a bridge team. So you have these very, mm. uh, very, very sophisticated people that might be using open source code um, that they got off, um, you know, say they were working with a researcher at MIT and they have some open source code. But if you want to apply that to a Hadoop cluster, it doesn't automatically magically happen. So then we need the engineers to go in and say, well, now, how does that code, how are all the compiled code? What do we need to do? Do we have the right versions? Um, mm. All of these um, um, kind of ways that uh, the scientists will talk that the uh, infrastructure mm. architecture people don't necessarily understand. So mm. bringing those teams together to understand both sides of what we're trying to do. And um, what I'm looking at is even a bridge team that is like, mm. that. so you have your, again, uh, I would call them machine learning engineers and some of your uh, more sophisticated software development teams interfacing with uh, the infrastructure side, the people that have to keep the thing running and redundant, resilient, and have a best practice around that kind of, um, you know, taking code that was brought in from the outside and productionizing it, but we're not productionizing it. Mm. And isolate you a you know into a Docker into you know to, to keep that off the grid. Mm. Not sure. So almost like risk profiling, uh, and when you have dozens of scientists doing this, making that into a um, a scalable cohesive unit uh, is something that we struggle with. Interesting. And uh, so with that, we are almost at the tail end of, of the convers- uh, conversation. And and Aaron, thank you so much for um, walking us through this amazing treasure trove of good information. Uh, that's really useful for us. So let's talk about you for a few for a few minutes. So in your journey um, so far, what are some of the tenets that has helped you stay successful or sane through through this transformation and through going through this extremely uh, rapidly evolving uh, fields? Well, you know, I think a lot of this is you know that mentality of of um, being looking at this in a simple simple way. So a lot of the stuff that we do is very technical. It's very detail oriented, and you get yourself wrapped up in trying to be perfect. And very early on, I think that's the way I was, is trying to make this all perfect and everything was tidy and um, really spent a lot of time on that last 5%. But what I found out is that a lot of times you spend 80% of your time on that last 5% to get it perfect when you're going to probably change it anyway um, or somebody's going to critique it. So it's really trying to get that first 80% done as fast as possible, not perfect, and then building the team around how to really make you uh, embrace your imperfections, to make Mm. you... Um, uh, more well-rounded and not try to be perfect uh, and spend all this time and then get frustrated when people review it and you're like, oh no, that's not perfect. 
So um, really looking at things that I can do well, simplistic, uh, simplistic, simplistically, uh, and then bringing others in to help and really trying to mm. take those, you know, look at my, my career, look at myself and say, well, how, maybe that's not what I like to do. Maybe I like to do, but maybe I'm not good at it. And being very realistic of what, um, you know, my talents can bring to the table. And at mm. the end of the day, you know, when you look at yourself, you, you have a utility, right? You have so many years that you can work. There's so many um, hours that you want to work and you want to have a life. Mm. So how can you build your life and your work and your productivity around getting the most out of your eight hours or 10 hours, whatever many hours you do a day? And so that's really what uh, I try to do more recently because, like you said, you can go mad. You need a lot of help if you're going to be, you know, you're technical and you're just, you got your headphones on, you're knee deep in it, sometimes coming out of that vacuum, um, mm. how to do that in a way that um, keeps you fresh and keeps you motivated. And then, and then again, from the team perspective, keeps you, you know, a member of that team, a valid member of that team. So I've learned that and just keep things fairly be rational with your time, be cautious with your time, uh, and then you know, rely on others and, and build a really nice uh, support system. Interesting. And and thank you, Aaron, on that. And and to our listeners and viewers, I, I do want to say um, that how true whatever Aaron is saying is, it, it, it is. Today is, I think it's Sunday evening, and we can see that you are extremely patient uh, on Sunday evening um, and, and sort of walking me through this this barrage of interesting questions. So appreciate definitely um, uh, whatever you're saying and, and whatever you're, you're standing for. I do appreciate that. So one more thing I, I ask our um, uh, sort of uh, our guest is some of the books that they can they can share with our uh, with our viewers and listeners. Dick, do you have any recommendations that you'd like to share? Yeah. So I would say two. One actually kind of piggybacks on that last one. It's called Smart Cuts. Um, mm. And I, I think I wrote down the, over here, I think who that was written by. I, I, if I give out a book to some of my leaders, it's that one. And mm. it's, it's all about, um, you know, trying to, you know, why do certain people go faster and go up the hill faster? Mm. You know, why mm. was the, the anecdote was about the president. So the presidents are usually younger than the senior senators uh, mm. because they, they know how to kind of move throughout the organization. Again, being very simplistic, finding the right people, being connected. Uh, and so that book, I think, is a, it's not very long. It's a, it's somewhat, it's a lot of stories, but um, mm. I think it's a very interesting book about how to, you know, navigate a career. Uh, mm. And the other one that I like, it's uh, by Daniel Pink, and it's called When. Mm. Uh, and it's all about, you know, for people who like productivity and like to get the best out of themselves. Um, he wrote a book about um, almost like more biorhythms. And mm. so there's certain times of the day when you're, more productive. Um, there's certain times a day when you're not productive and you kind of take into a trowel and there's times when you're more uh, um, creative. And so this book mm. goes through that and, and, and really gives good tangible examples. And I've started to use it and I've noticed mm. in a more calmness, like, a, I don't know if you can see this, I have a Fitbit ring. Mm. And so this actually, so some of the tech that I like is tech that's actionable for health. Mm. So this mm. is like a Fitbit, but it's on your hand and it actually in the morning, mm. it'll tell you if you're ready for the day. Mm. And so it tracks you over time. And so now that I've been doing that, my heart rate is going down. My sleep is getting better. Um, and so um, it's a very interesting concept that I, again, as a young person, it was like, I'm going to mm. go as hard as I can. I'm going to work as hard. I don't mm. care. Uh, and then as you get older, you're like, I can't sustain that. <laughs> so there's got to be some hacks that you can do. And this, those two books, I think, are very good at you know, looking at the big picture as you're going through career and also getting your day-to-day -day and trying to get the best out of your days. Beautiful. Uh, and, and with that... We are at the end of the conversation, um, and so one thing that that um, 
as a closing remark, what would you like to share with our viewers and listeners? If one thing they want to take away from our, our sort of this um, long conversation, what would that be? What would you say to those? Um, yeah. Um, you know, I say that, you know, one of the things that changed in my career was when I moved from, uh, you know, the business side to this more research healthcare side, it was that why. Um, so that's mm. the other thing, you know, really trying to understand the why of why mm. you do things. And I think that is a very big help, especially when you get into situations where you are struggling and you, you, you're on a, it is a Sunday night. You don't want to go to work the next day. What's going to get you, get mm. you up in the morning. I would say, think about mm. that why for you. Um, and that's also how you're going to learn because if you, if you want to learn, um, some things that'll get you over the edge is that why. So for me, it's healthcare, mm. it's helping people, but for you, everybody's gonna be a little bit different. So find that why. Mm. Interesting. With that, um, and thank you so much for being extremely generous with your time, walking us through some of the, again, very interesting topics uh, in a very uh, edible way. Uh, I do appreciate your time on that. And you're always welcome back on the podcast. Wish you nothing but success in your journey. And thank you. Thank you so much. No, thank you. And best of luck to everyone who's listening.